Hello, everyone, and welcome to Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Before we get started, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, linked in the description below. We hope you enjoy this episode. And good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Conrad Meyer here in the office today and with the studio with Rory Bellina at another episode of Health Law Talks. Rory, how are you? Doing well. Good afternoon, everyone. And today we have two special guests in the studio that I think are just fantastic. It's going to be a great show. Uh, we have in the uh, studio with us today uh, Greg Waddell. And Greg is the uh, VP of Legal and Governmental Affairs for the Louisiana Hospital Association. Greg, how are you? Welcome. Uh, excited to be here. Fantastic. And we also have Dr. Joe Cantor. Dr. Joe Cantor, he is with the uh, Louisiana Department of Health. He is the uh, state medical officer. Dr. Cantor, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank well, you for joining us. We are. We're very happy to have both of you here on, uh, I guess, a very a very timely and, uh, and a very uh, good uh, topic here. We're going to be talking about uh, a lot of COVID stuff. And I think a lot of things that, that lawyers would like to know and even, you know, the general public would like to know. So, Rory, what, what, are, what is our agenda for today? What are we going to learn today? Sure. So I think before we get into a, a quick, you know, background and, and recap from Dr. Kanner, you know, three things we, we talked about discussing were um, the various different orders for ivermectin. That's a, that's a big topic right now on the North Shore in St. Tammany. And then we're seeing it in other states and counties as well. It looks like it's, it's kind of starting to expand um, nationwide. Vaccine mandates, that's obviously a very popular thing, especially being here in the New Orleans area. Um, and we're kind of going to go from there, and it might lead us into other topics that we didn't plan on talking about, but that's what this is for. So uh, we're very excited to have you here. Thank you for taking the time out. And, um, you know, if you'd love to give us an update on kind of, you know, what's been going on in your world, where things were, where how things are now, you know, what do you see going on? Um, but we'll get into the more detail, but we're going to turn it over to you. Sure, I'm happy to be here. It's not always easy to get a doc in a room of three attorneys, but (laughs) it's for a good cause, so I'm pleasure, proud to be here. Thank you. Um, You know, thankfully, we're in a much better place now than we were uh, even, you know, four or five weeks ago. Looking back, and now it's been 18, 19 months of this pandemic, we've had four discrete surges in Louisiana. Uh, The first one back in March of 2020, which was one of the first surges in the country. And I'll remind people, there were two weeks back in March of 2020 when Louisiana, and particularly New Orleans, led the world in the rate of new cases. Had the fastest growing outbreak to date at that point in time, faster than Italy, faster than South Korea, faster than even Wuhan, China itself. We had uh, two additional surges after that, and then that led us up to this prior surge, the Delta surge, mm-hmm. which was our fourth surge. It was our most damaging surge as measured by the number of cases, the number of deaths, the number of hospitalized COVID patients. Mm-hmm. We pushed our hospitals to the absolute brink in this last surge. It was driven by the Delta variant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was tough to get through. I'll tell you, now there's about five states nationwide that have formally enacted crisis standards of care. We never did that statewide, but we came awfully close to doing so. We peaked around the first or second week of August, and we've come down consistently. And we're happy to say that right now we're at at about the same point that we were just before the surge started. So our our rates are about where they were on the 1st of July. Sure. So we we recouped all those losses. Hospitals feel the difference. There's about 250 hospitalized patients with COVID in the state now. That's down from a peak of 3,022. Oh, wow. 
significant decrease. Percent positivity of all tests being conducted is at, at about 2%, which is a very low number for us. Um, the challenge uh, that, that I see going forward is there's always going to be a new variant. And uh, until we can get our vaccination rates up, I think we're going to be vulnerable to another surge like this down the road. You usually have a few months of quiet. Okay. Um, so that's going to be the focus now that we have some breathing room, now that we're not with our backs against the wall. It's how do we really protect ourselves going forward. Do we have any idea, like, percentage of population for the state of Louisiana in terms of vaccination? Where are we right now? Do we know? Just below 50%, 48 49%, okay. something like that. General population fully vaccinated. It's about 10 percentage points behind the national average right now. And yeah. where where do you think we need to be, or what do you think would be comfortable-wise to where we're going to keep, like you said, we're going to yeah. keep getting these variants. At what point will it not matter if we keep getting the variants here because we're vaccinated at a certain threshold? 65 70%, okay. something like that. You know, you also factor in people who were infected, you know, okay. protection by way of um, infection with the virus. It's difficult to quantify. It certainly counts for something. It's tough to know how much. We had a lot of exposure this past surge, so that counts for something, but I don't think we have enough vaccine-related protection right now to really ensure we don't have another surge going forward. Okay. And, and what about children? I mean, I know that's a big question on, on parents' minds right now. Uh, I think you have a, one camp that thinks, I can't wait till we get, you know, emergency use authorization for certain vaccines for children. Uh, there's another camp, I'm sure, that says, well, I don't want my kids vaccinated no matter what happens. So, so where, do you, where do you equate the, the, the general population percentage of vaccination with the children? I think it's going to be a struggle in Louisiana. You know, it's interesting times now. So it, we're recording this on November uh, 1st. 1st right now. That's right. So uh, last Friday, a couple of days ago, the FDA gave emergency use authorization to Pfizer. Right. Going down to age five. The CDC advisory committee is meeting tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the CDC director at some point thereafter will render a formal recommendation. So we should expect to be vaccinating kids down to five within one to two weeks Okay, is a reasonable timeline. It's a lot of people. It's about 420,000 people throughout the state. I think we'll see a little bit of a bolus of families who are eager to get their kids vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's going to be a slog, to be honest with you. It's highly contentious. It's been politicized here. Sure. But it is a vulnerable population. And even though kids don't get that sick themselves, on average, that doesn't mean anything if it's your family that has a kid to get sick. Right. And kids are highly effective vectors that can bring that virus home to mom and dad and, and grandpa and grandma who might not be fully protected because they have weakened immune systems. So we think it's an important part of the puzzle. Any discussion or anything that you've heard in, in, in your line, especially at the state level, regarding vaccine mandates for children? Is that, do you think that's possible? Uh, any discussion that you can reveal at this time uh, regarding that? Yeah, and you know, to be honest, the governor's been pretty transparent about this. So um, Revised Statute 17, colon 170, talks about uh, vaccine requirements for educational settings, daycare, K through 12, institutes of higher education. We have started the formal rulemaking process to add COVID to that list. And the way it's being done is we'll wait until it receives full FDA approval. I full, see. Full okay. licensure. So get past uh, emergency use author, EUA authorization and then full, full-blown full approval. Yeah. And at that point, follow it under the, the mandated vaccines for, for education. Yeah, which has a lot of exemptions. Um, you can do an exemption for medical, religious, or just personal slash philosophical. And we're going to get more into that, too, because, I sure. mean, I've, I've heard of stories where, and I don't, you know, again, this is all third-party hearsay, but people coming in with religious exemptions or medical exemptions that are being reviewed by various boards, by various institutions, who are denying them blanketly 
for whatever reason, and usually these boards have zero medical personnel on them, uh, and I'm hearing this, you know, haphazardly. I don't know if Rory, if you're hearing that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but just wanted to know any comments on 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 that. If you've heard the same thing, and what, what what's your I guess, the uh, opinion on that. Yeah, I think it's different if it's an employment setting or if it's edu- educational. Mm-hmm. The law gives broad exemptions for educational settings, uh-huh. and that's the intent. We know it's not going to be 100%, not going to be close to 100%, sure. and we don't want to force people to really prove their exemption for the ed- educational setting. Right. I still think with those exemptions, you move the needle significantly in the population. Got okay. it. Good point. Okay. Good point. All right. Well, like you said, we're going we're gonna to jump back in and talk more about um, vaccine mandates or especially uh, vaccinations for kids. We also want to talk about the recent issues going on with ivermectin orders and treatments in the state and uh, just kind of a state of overall with, with vaccine mandates. So um, please stay tuned. All right. So, Greg, one of the things, and, and I know we've talked about this, Roy, the lawyers on the panel have talked about this, uh, are the recent cases in Louisiana uh, dealing with off-label use and, and actually uh, of like ivermectin, for example, in, in COVID, and that recent 22nd JDC case that uh, where the, the court ordered the hospital in the case to uh, administer ivermectin for the patient or, or the patient brought in the ivermectin. And, and, Correct. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on that case because I know that affects you and, and what you do for the hospital association. Yes, certainly. We've seen, uh, we've seen the case here in Louisiana. We've also seen cases uh, in other states uh, around the country. Uh, I think the Louisiana case is, is certainly interesting. Uh, the background there was uh, the patient was at a very severe case of COVID, uh, you know, sort of in that sort of end stages there. The family really wanted to do everything they could uh, to try and, you know, obviously help their family member, right? I mean, that's a totally natural uh, position. Uh, the hospital was uh, uncomfortable with prescribing ivermectin, uh, you know, did not feel like that uh, the, the benefits, uh, you know, outweighed the risk. Um, and so ultimately, the, you know, the family went to court. Uh, the court issued an ex parte order, uh, ordering the, the hospital to either administer the ivermectin or uh, allow a family member who also happened to be a, a physician assistant to actually come in uh, and administer ivermectin, uh, which obviously from the hospital standpoint was, was you know, problematic really on both fronts. Um, but I think it's certainly, uh, you know, you can... You can kind of look at these cases and get caught up, I guess, in the sort of immediacy of, of, of COVID. Uh, but when we really look at these cases, I think they raise much bigger issues about, you know, is there really the separation or the proper separation between uh, courts and, you know, the practice of medicine? Uh, should we be concerned as healthcare providers, this idea that the, you know, courts would uh, inject their uh, idea of what the appropriate practice of medicine really is. And, and I think Dr. Cantor, you know, as a state health officer, really, I think from a, uh, just the fact that you're a, a physician, you know, I'd, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts, you know, it, uh, from a physician standpoint, you know, have this idea of the court saying, all right, Dr. Cantor, you know, you've got to administer this medication, or, or maybe if you even took it out of the realm of a medication, you know, what, what are the limits? Yeah. Uh, you know, in these situations, um, and is this the, is this where the courts really should be? Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to kind of hear what, what your thoughts are there. Uh, I, I think it's a rather scary proposition. You know, if I was a, 
a doc on this team, I might say, well, I guess I can go home. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> Judge, sure. Judge is going to take call for me. <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, this is an interesting case. I'm, I'm glad the hospital in this case fought it. Uh, they didn't have to, and even I think the patient expired, but and they continued to fight it because it's a it's a rather important precedent, I think, to, to make a point on. Um, you know, physicians are bound uh, by ethical duty, by professional duty, to practice according to the data and the science. And that's, that's what we do as docs. Um, we're free to make recommendations. A patient is free to seek out a second opinion. A patient is free to request a transfer to another hospital. Um, all of those things are, are good, sound things a, a patient can do. Mm-hmm. But for a judge to step in and order a physician to administer a medicine or provide treatment or do surgery or do anything else like that, when the physician doesn't think it's in the patient's best interest, according to the data and the science, to me is a brooch of ethical responsibility and opens up a tam- Pandora's box. What about if it is surgery? What about if it's something more drastic? The details in this case, I mean, to be honest, if you're taking ivermectin in human formulation and in a normal human dose, it's not that dangerous of a medicine, to be honest with you, and there's not a lot of side effects. So the downside isn't really harm. It's just that you're not doing anything to, to help treat the COVID. But the precedent of forcing a physician to do something that they think is not in the patient's best interest is a slippery slope that I think we need to be careful about. Certainly has a lot of implications, too, when you sort of start peeling the onion back, you know, medical malpractice. And where does that leave everyone if the physician did order, even if they didn't? Um, you know, uh, I think it just opens up a really number of different sure, interesting sure. sort of legal questions where you've seen sort of I'm, I'm not sure outside of maybe this uh sort of hyper focus around COVID that that we would be as a general society okay with the idea of courts doing this but we, we sort of get wrapped up you know uh in COVID that um you know maybe folks aren't really thinking through that all the way and that, and that was interesting too because the the the, the motion of the the, the the declaratory ruling that was submitted to the court on this had zero case law absolutely no, no. zero case law no precedent set now maybe that's because it's never been done right but the, I think the question is 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 are we we in this particular case the judiciary has supplanted its opinion for that of providers Sure. Now, the issue, I mean, I can understand the problem. The, the, the dilemma is the patient can't be moved because they're intubated. So you can't, I mean, how it's, it's hard to get a second opinion, right? You can't just switch facilities in the COVID crisis. I mean, it's hard, but not impossible because we transfer intubated patients from hospital to hospital occasionally. But with, I mean, let's just say it's hard. Hard because yeah. everything's packed. Everything's packed. Right? Everything's packed. So, right. you know, could you go on from one hospital A to hospital B that maybe would have, okay, you can issue the, you know, administer the mm-hmm. ivermectin. But, but to me, I agree with Greg. This is a dangerous precedent because people haven't, Thought, I guess there's so much emotion with COVID. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dis- disregarding that. But if the court is allowed to impose its own will over providers, are we opening up Pandora's box for other things? And that, that's one thing that that I, <clears throat> excuse me, thought of as well, uh, Greg and Dr. Kenner. I'd love to get your opinions on it. Is that the 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 judge in this case? I, I believe the order was twofold. It was that the, I believe the the patient presented with the ivermectin, and I don't know if the, the staff took it from her or what, but she had already started the the dosage, and uh, the order was to a lot like a, 
give it back to her, allow her to continue to take it, or allow her, I believe it was her daughter, um, to come in, who is a PA, and administer it to it. You know, Dr. Kanner, I assume you're on numerous uh, medical staffs. You've gone through the bylaws. You've got privileges at different places. I mean, there's there's rules and regulations on what you can and can't do. You know, if a, if a judge that's unfamiliar with those bylaws says, you know, Dr. Kanner, I want you to write a prescription for this. I mean, how does that play into into your professional responsibility and, and your malpractice, essentially. I tell you, if my employer ordered me to do a course of treatment that, that I didn't agree with, I would probably try and find a new employer, okay. to be frank with you. Sure. You know, patients are not prisoners. And if a patient wants to eat something in their hospital room that's counter to their treatment plan, to be honest, they're free to do so, by and large. If they want to sneak in some medicine, they're probably free to do so. This patient was intubated. So it wasn't just an issue of the patient taking medicine. Someone right. had to administer that medicine right. to the patient. And therein is the ethical breach. And this is complicated by the desperation of the family. They have sure. a patient who's crashing, likely going to expire. Um, and they are desperate. And a lot of families are desperate. And that's why this snake oil treatment, you know, it was hydroxychloroquine. Now it's ivermectin. Next week it'll be something else. That's why they're so easy to fall victim. People fall in this trap because... Everyone wants there to be a silver bullet, and we all wish there was a silver bullet. This just isn't it, unfortunately. Sure, sure. And, Greg, I mean, what do you think your issues are on behalf of the various, you know, hospitals that you work with that, you know, is this going to open up a case where, you know, Connor and I would want a judge to tell us to prepare a, you know, prepare a deposition a certain way. I mean, what do you think the, you know, in this case, it, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. But for a judge ordering a hospital to allow something to happen, I, I'm not familiar with this happening before. Yeah, no, no. What are the implications? I mean, where, where does this go for the hospitals if, if this is allowed to go, you know, if this is not resolved? I, I think there are a couple of things. One, you know, the, the order um, required either the uh, CEO of the facility uh, or the CMO uh, to administer uh, the Evermectin and, you know, in any sort of hospital setting, you know, the, uh, the CEO is never going to tell uh, right. Dr. Right. Cantor or any other physician. Um, here's what you should do, doctor. Here's what you should do. Right. That would be, right. you know, completely inappropriate sure. uh, on, on a host of different levels. Right. Um, but, but again, so here's the hospital in this situation where arguably uh, not complying, does that really put them in a, in a uh, you know, a place where they can be held in contempt of court? Um, and again, or take the other untenable position of, you know, walking in and telling the physician, you know, you have to do this, and that both are equally just as is, is, is untenable, and I think uh, a terrible position for the for the facility. I think on the question of having um, another healthcare provider that has not been credentialed with the facility to come in, uh, you know, again. Uh, another host of, of, sure. of really problematic, which was this case because, yeah. like we said, she was a PA, but she wasn't credentialed at this at the facility. So, you know, what happens in that case? Sure, and I, I think uh, you know, Dr. Canner would agree that uh, he wouldn't uh, really dream of of going in, uh, you know, to a hospital that that he didn't have credentials and and you know, try and order, uh, you know, medications or anything like that. I mean, there's set processes, and they're there for a really good reason. Uh, and, and really, you know, should be respected. And I think it, this, these types of orders, I think, just kind of blow through, um, you know, all of those different different things, um, you know, and that's, sure. that's uh, really a lot of difficult questions. I think, in, you know, in other areas and other states, they've really tried to do this under the sort of uh, uh, underneath the, the preliminary injunction type of, of uh, action. Um, in the Louisiana case, it was a little bit unclear 
you know, what legal basis was actually being asserted uh, that the courts would have the legal authority to even do it. Um, so I think that makes it even a little bit more different than what we've seen, uh, you know, in some of the other in some of the other states. And, and I haven't, I didn't uh, really go back to look to see if, if uh, other states had, had allowed the actual orders or not. Uh, the, the two that I could find, one was Ohio. Uh, the court denied the preliminary injunction, and then also there was another one, uh, Staten Island, uh, where their Supreme Court, which I think is is actually probably one of their lower level courts, that's a district court. Kind of do it weird, yeah, um, or maybe we do. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we, we might have it backwards, right? right. <laughs> uh, but they, you know, uh, they declined to uh, issue the order. Well, uh, in that case, the court said the court will not require any doctor to be placed in a potentially unethical position, wherein they could be uh, the uh, committing medical malpractice by administering a medication for really an un- unapproved and uh, not a lot of basis for, you know, an off-label use. Yeah, and, you know, the issue of it being approved, clearly off-label use is a part of medicine and an important part of medicine, but it's usually based in guidance, based in established practice, and there was not really much attempt at all in this case to argue that this was. It's pretty I mean, you look at the leading healthcare agencies and recommendation bodies out there, there's nothing for this except some people on the fringe so that a judge would go in as you said greg and and order a physician to do something clearly against not only their own judgment but the judgment of of every leading medical society in the country is it's a (laughs) half-baked notion the way i see it sure sure dr karen i have a directed question for you you know with this we don't know where this is going to go right with the hospital because there's like greg mentioned there's some concerns that they might be held in contempt because they didn't allow it to happen before the patient expired what's your biggest concern if other districts or other plaintiffs in this case you know see this and see the success that this one case held you know what do you think you mentioned pandora's box being open so what's your biggest concern with pandora's box being open and lawyers and judges and the judiciary getting involved in essentially kind of dictating how you or or someone would call in greg's instance someone come into a hospital and and kind of practice medicine what's your um you know what's your issue with that yeah I think there's harm to the to, to physicians as an individual. There's harm to the institution of medicine. There's harm to hospitals. But ultimately, there's harm to patients and their families. And there's a reason why we don't do unnecessary medical procedures or treatments, because when there is no potential for benefit, all there is is potential for harm. And at the end of the day, patients and families are going to suffer from this. And I think the judge probably led into this emotional case. And of course, it's emotional. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, and that's stressful. But you can't let emotion get in the way of this. And something has no potential to hurt a patient. Only thing that's left is the potential to harm them. Great point. We got cut. Okay. Oh, we're back. Okay. I didn't see the timer fly up, so that, that's why I'm looking at the timer. All right, back on. Um, one thing that we talked about is is judicial interference, which is you know what this case is, seems to be about um, in COVID land. One thing that you know bothers me, or not really concerns me, is is how does this affect bylaw provisions now with Granger, which are contractually related. In, according to the Supreme Court, so with Granger case, bylaws the bylaws are a contract, and so what if the bylaws have a prohibition against this, or don't allow for it? 
Are you now opening up hospital liability or that physician's opening up liability from a bylaw perspective if the court order contradicts what the bylaws provide? And I'd love to hear your comment, both of your comments. Greg, your comments on that, and then Dr. Cantor. Um, Again, I think there's so many questions like that. There's so many angles to this because it's such a, a just a blush, you know, give the give the the medication uh, and and we don't account for any of the other possible things that this is going to, you know, call into question, whether it be hospital bylaws, whether it be the medical ethics of the professional. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, and even, even to me, even if you had a situation where, in this case, you didn't, there wasn't really a, an opportunity for a contradictory hearing, um, you know, for the medical professionals to right. come in and even have a debate. Right. But frankly, I think even if there sure. was, I still think all those questions remain, um, you know, when ultimately it's not the, the medical judgment, uh, you know, uh, that's driving, uh, you know, the care. It's, it's, a, it's, it's the court, which is wholly different than what we do in any other, I guess your more typical, even end-of-life cases, right? Right. In those cases, typically we're arguing uh, who has the power to consent for either continuation or, you know, not continuing. The care. Right. Right. That's right. But I don't think we've ever seen a situation, even in those cases, where the courts would be so specific to say, you know, you've got to administer this or you have to give that. Well, I guess we're lucky in a sense that if there was an issue, right, at least now with the government, the governor's emergency order, you would have a very difficult time proving gross negligence uh, for a med mal claim because there's no, you know, right now with that that order in effect, you know, there's no professional liability claims unless there's gross negligence involved. So at least you have that. Uh, But still, I mean, imagine if that wasn't in effect and you still have a court order regardless of COVID or not, or some other issue. And it really kind of puts the, the crosshairs on providers, you know, here, shut up and do it and do what I say um, from the judiciary. Now, I mean, I'm not, that's a hard line, but I mean, that's, that's essentially what was said here. I think uh, also in the context, if you take it out of, you know, in this instant case, we're talking about Evermectin and as Dr. Kanner, you know, uh, said just a minute ago, right? Uh, taken for its, uh, you know, usual uh, treatment, right? Minimal, uh, probably downsides. But, but let's say it wasn't Ivermectin. Let's say that it was, let's say it wasn't medication at all. Uh, we, we've heard a lot of other... Well, let's say, it was, let's say it's hydroxychloroquine. I mean, that, that was the drug before. And a lot of the, uh, and, and you know this from, uh, as a physician, but hydroxychloroquine has its own issues. It's not like ivermectin in a sense because of, uh, it has its own side effects. It has its own problemat- problematic, uh, uh, you know, issues. Uh, it's a little bit different. So what if it's a, a drug like that? How, I mean, it, it's a more problematic. I mean, you don't know. Ivermectin is a little more commonplace in, 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 in what we're talking about, but hydroxychloroquine is not. That's a great point. You know, the, the precedent's obviously the same. The practical right. effect, you're right, hydroxychloroquine has a worse side effect profile than ivermectin does. It has some cardiac side effects, right. some conduction delays. People can go into cardiac arrest. And r- rare, but again, it's not, again, when you have no benefit, all you're left with is the potential harm. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the doc who, sure. who might be ordered to do this. Sure. And I think I would turn around and say, 
well, judge, what dose do you want me to give? Because there's no treatment guidelines. There's no sure. real treatment right. guidelines. Do you want me to make up a dose and, and just do it? It's an absurd order. I think it's totally half-baked. And I'm, I really am thankful that the hospital is taking sure. this seriously. They could have just said after the patient expired, well, well, it's moot. And yeah, I don't it's, think it's they did. Issue, right. yeah, they, no. which, the, the precedent here, the underlying issues, are worthy of pushing this issue sure. forward. Now, Dr. Kanner, some of the proponents of this order that supported the patient and the patient's family were saying that, like Greg mentioned, this is no different than a, a, fatal, a family battling between should a patient be removed from a ventilator. And the court is ordering... The court is ordering the patient to be removed from a ventilator. The court is ordering the patient to be given this medicine. And, you know, how do you answer that? And, and do you see an instance where, you know, besides the ventilator example, where a, a court would be or should be allowed to dictate, you know, what you do? And how do you kind of compare and contrast the two? And those are always really challenging cases. One difference is you're typically withdrawing care. Um, we're here you're actually going to give something that wasn't being given before. And those cases typically involve some disagreement either between family members or between the family member and the institution and, and people who are it can be declared brain dead but on life support go to court it's a completely separate issue because no one is negating um a, a treatment that hasn't yet been been given it's, it's whether or not it's futile at that point but to to order a physician to actually initiate something that um there is no consensus at all on, on whether or not sure. it's it's potentially beneficial. I, I think is is a step way too far in that. And so now, I mean, actually, now you're asking the judiciary to be the IRB board, you know, IRB, you know. So, so, so my what I th- what I see happening is if, if this is allowed to go forward, if it's not challenged, right, then you're going to have patients who look up any kind of thing on the, take COVID out of it, any kind of. You know, potential treatment for any kind of, you know, any remedy they can think of could be on the Internet. And they're going to go to court and say, well, you know, judge, I want I mean, this I I saw this on the Internet. I saw this and this could save, you know, my life. And I understand the plight behind that. But now you're going to have the judiciary act as the uh, as sort of the gateway or the gatekeeper, if you will, if you allow this to go forward. If it's not put to bed, you could see the the Pandora. That's the Pandora's box. Right. That's right. And those type of conversations, as absurd as they are, happen all the time in hospitals. And families come in with all types of things that they've heard or read and try and get their clinicians right. to do it. And the conversation usually doesn't go farther than, than that. Right. And, and, and hopefully, now this right now, Greg, First Circuit, is that right? Uh, uh, has it gone up to the First Circuit? I, I don't know the answer. Or, I, I know it passed the order. And so I know it's been appealed, but I don't know if there's been an actual. Yeah, I believe they're, I believe they're appealing the, the the systems appealing because of their concern. Like Greg mentioned, is are they going to be held in contempt of court for not providing it? You know, immediately. So we're going to keep a close eye on that because I think, I think that's something that that definitely requires follow up on, uh, just to make sure you know where where do the where do the courts stand. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the state has licensure power over all professions, you know, over physicians, over hospitals, mm-hmm. and and they don't really interfere with that because they feel those agencies can govern themselves. And so, you know, this will be an interesting situation to see how the courts rule on this uh, and hopefully we'll put this issue to bed uh, so that, you know, I guess, you know, we can decide if there needs to be further legislation to uh, to cover the hospitals and the physicians going forward. Yeah, definitely something that's going to going to remain really high on our radar. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now I'll, let's let's pivot a minute, because I think we're going to talk about the, the next issue um, that I think is hot. Right. Is the mandate. 
I mean, I know you've heard, I'm sure you've heard this a hundred, mm-hmm. hundreds of times. Um, uh, and we're, as, as practitioners, we're getting this question literally, I would say. Daily for me. Daily. Daily for me. Every other day I'm getting a call uh, from providers. Now, this is dealing with the employer mandate. And so what, what has, what's been the discussion at the state level um, regarding, uh, we know the issue on the, on the Fed side and even on the hospital uh, provider side with the OSHA ETS that was issued in June. So we know that's covered. But from a private employer standpoint, what have been the high-level discussions that you can share with us with respect to mandating vaccines at the private level? So, again, in the educational setting, uh, under the context of broad exemptions, which allows this, I think makes it possible in a state like Louisiana, that's going forward right. if and when full licensure is extended. Right now, full licensure applies to people 16 and above. Outside of the educational setting into the employment setting, the state really is taking a back seat. Um, okay. You know, we are waiting uh, a number of federal rules. CMS is due out right. for a rule right. for, for healthcare providers and institutions. We're waiting on a, a final OSHA rule um, for for other employers as well. I don't see the state getting more aggressive than that. Perhaps our own clinical entities, the Department of Health runs clinical entities, and, and we'll be following federal guidance on that. But I don't see the state getting more aggressive on this. That's not to say that there's not grounds for this. I mean, clearly employers, particularly healthcare employers, have been mandating vaccines for for many, many, many years. Sure. Um, you know, as a member of a healthcare staff, a house staff, I'm required to show vaccines. That's that's nothing new. Um, and I think on another level of this, we have to find a way to get more people vaccinated. And there's multiple avenues to that. There's carrots and sticks and incentives and everything else. I feel like um, we have in this state tried everything we can. I'm being completely honest sure. and a little bit frustrated with that. Right. We've tried financial incentives. We had a high dollar lottery program. We have a hundred dollars. I, I, I never got that. I mean, I wish <laughs> I, I, I saw could, the I commercials for it. Yeah, yeah, I never I got my ticket. <laughs> I think you were uh, you weren't allowed to participate. I remember there's some exclusions. There I think, some exclusions. I think you weren't. A, too, yeah. I think Greg probably wasn't allowed to participate. <laughs> That's right. I saw. So I mean, I saw <laughs> the incentives. There's been a lot of carrots, and, I, of and carrots. I get that. So it's good. Yeah. So basically, LDH is going to be taking a step back, not really talking about private. Let that mm-hmm. kind of govern itself. And, uh, and interestingly enough, I mean, because when, when Rory and I did the show about, what, a month ago? Yep, yep. A month ago, uh, when President Biden came out on this private employer mandate of 100 employees or more, the first thing that we did, was we looked at each other like, wow, okay, here, we, here it comes, right? And we were waiting for this because I did see the OSHA Emergency Temporary Standard ETS for the healthcare providers back in June. And so now I've been patiently waiting. I think we're, now it's um, two months. Yep. Uh, and so we're waiting for the ETS to come out. But it looks like the, the private industry is not waiting. They're just saying, we're going to do it now. Yep. You know, so uh, have you personally, professionally, um, have you got what, – what's been sort of the, the, the discussion – well, I mean, yeah, I know LDH is not getting involved, but as a, as a physician yourself, um, what's your thoughts on private mandates uh, from the employer side? How do you feel about that? Should they wait for the ETS? Should we do it now? I mean, what's sort of your, your thought process on that? It's an easier call in my mind for healthcare institutions because okay. there's just no question the care being provided to a patient is safer 
if the caregivers, not just the doc, but the nurses and everyone else are vaccinated. There's, there's absolutely no question about that. So it's clearly mission-centric. I think the conversation is a little bit more complicated when you move outside of the healthcare mm-hmm. provision. I'll tell you what drove the federal decision on this was Louisiana's experience with Delta. Really? And you know, we wow. were, like initially, you know, a year ago with COVID, mm-hmm. we were on the leading edge of this Delta surge. Uh, one of the first states to have a Delta surge, and it almost wrecked us, came pretty pretty darn close. Mm-hmm. We were in close communication with the feds. They saw what was happening. You know, we are at the bottom of the barrel with vaccination rates, but there's a lot of states only a few percentage points above us right now. And if they think that two percentage points are going to protect them against the mm-hmm. Delta surge, they're wrong. That's what's happening now. Delta's moving up north. It's moving out west. You have a number of states enacting crisis standards. Mm-hmm. And the feds took that and said, we need to pull every lever that we can to get ahead of that, and those type of mandates right. were, were part of that. And you mentioned other states. I think that that's an interesting thing to bring up. I know we're Louisiana and, and focus heavily on Louisiana, but you know, you see Louisiana doing things that that other states states are not doing. Vac- vaccine mandate. You see Orleans Parish doing things that other parishes aren't doing. You know what what consideration has gone to that to where Louisiana is is pushing very hard as compared to our neighbors to you know Mississippi, Texas. I know that there's a lot of politics involved in that, obviously. But you know what do you think the considerations were taken um, so where we kind of are, are more pro vaccine than for lack of our expression, pro-choice per se, compared to these the, the surrounding states. Yes. You know, it does vary depending where you are in the state. And, you know, New Orleans is kind of its own entity here. Sure. But for, for good reason. Number one, it bore the brunt of the first surge. It had the most casualties. People have a real visceral memory of what that's like and know people who got sick and died. And the other thing is New Orleans has a vulnerability in, in the tourism industry. And because so many people come in, they felt the need to protect themselves against that with an eye towards Mardi Gras. And I don't think they're wrong in that. You know, I don't think that mandates are the only way to get to where we need to be. But I am frustrated that we've tried a lot of carrots so far, Mm -hmm. and they have yet to get us to where we need to be. And as a society here, as a community, like I said, we're going to be vulnerable to another surge that takes a toll on human life. It takes a toll on our economy. And if there's a way to prevent that, I think we need to be pulling the levers that we can pull right now. And maybe we could talk a little bit. uh, You made a reference to crisis standards of care. Um, and I think folks, you know, particularly in the healthcare and hospital industries, understand that. But but for some of the folks out there that might not be uh, as up on on what that means, kind of kind of give us a little insight on on what we mean by crisis standard of care, because I think it's important in the context of why vaccination is so important. Uh, because taking that step, really engaging in a crisis standard uh, of care decision, uh, there's there's a lot of of really uh, huge consequences to that yeah um i mean it's 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 apropos to talk about this the day after halloween because it really is a nightmare situation it's essentially the state giving legal cover to hospitals and doctors to say if you need to triage and decide who gets your care and who doesn't based on a preset uh, list of criteria you have the legal cover to go about and do that we've never really formally enacted it here it's typically thought of in terms of, okay, I've got 10 ventilators and 20 patients that need it. Right. How do I split it up? Okay, you're too old, you don't get one. You're young, you get one. You already have diabetes, you don't get one. Those type of horrendous decisions that no one wants to find themselves in, 
little more nuance in this case because we're, cause we're not worried about ventilators now. We're, no, we're worried about staffing resources, the ability to care for a certain number of patients. But the fact that a number of states, Washington State, Idaho, Alaska, a couple other ones, Colorado, have enacted these standards is, I mean, that is as bad as it gets. They're ringing the bell that the hospitals literally cannot care for every patient that needs care. That's, I mean, I can't think of a time it's been that bad, but it surprises me that we're kind of just accepting that as almost, okay, that's what's happening now. That, that, that's not okay, and that should be a signal that we have to do everything we can. Put yourself in the shoes of someone that needs to be hospitalized. If someone tells you you can't be hospitalized because, sorry, this person next to you is just as sick but probably has more life expectancy, that's just a crazy proposition. It's, it's crutch. I mean, I mean, nobody wants to who, – who can make that? It's right. so hard. Or even the context where you're injured, you know, not because of COVID uh, and you need to try and, and right. you know, get to a hospital that's, you know, well beyond its its capacity. Um, you know, when you're talking crisis standard of care, you have really, really maxed uh, the community resources, right. uh, you know, in that area. Well, let's be let's be clear right now. I mean, we're not in a crisis standard right now, are we? No. 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 We got very, very when we had over 3,000 hospitalized COVID mm-hmm. patients, we got very close. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, I still practice. I practice as, a, as an ER doc in town. And the hospital I work in, we routinely take transfers from other mm-hmm. hospitals. Um, I accepted a transfer of a heart attack patient who was having a STEMI. Um, mm-hmm. This patient had to bypass six cath lab-capable hospitals to get to me. It took a two-and-a-half-hour ambulance ride to wow. get to me because those hospitals were full. That's by virtue of us being at max capacity. If we were operating under crisis standards, the answer might have been, Can't. sorry, right. thank you. Sure, yeah. sure. Oh, wow. So to round that out, I mean, just how important getting that vaccination percentage up, uh, because that right. really is that sure. a, a huge key in the puzzle of keeping our hospitals in a position where we can continue to provide you know, access to care. That's, right, and I think the point you're making, Greg, is not just to COVID patients. Right. It's to people that have car accidents and heart attacks and all the other things that you don't plan for. We're not used in this country to not having first-class medical treatment available at the drop of a hat. And that's the risk that we put ourselves in. And we got really, really close here to not having that. And I think I, I can understand from a mission and vision standpoint from a, from a hospital that as caregivers and providers, you want to take the lead and show the public that Hey, we're 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 vaccinated, you know. Uh, for one, really, you know, to make sure that they're not carrying or vectors for the virus for patients, um, and but also too, just to be, I guess the the I guess the front bearers, right? The bellwether to show the public, hey, you know, maybe you know this is not snake oil. This is not bad. We're doing it. Uh, and we're doing it to show the strength. And I understand that. And also, let me tell you, I, I understand a person's right to decide that, that about their choice. I get that. I do. And so when, when I look at the, the, the lawsuits and I see all the nurses, I mean, the very first one, Rory and I did a show on this. We did the one on yep. the, uh, uh, the hospital in Houston. Um, that was one of the first ones. Yes, Methodist. They had about 160 or more nursing yep. staff literally fired on the spot. Uh, for non-compliance, and and we're seeing it carry over here. Um, I, and I know you you're you know LDH is not going to step in. I I understand that, uh, and, but I'm just curious what you, you know. 
how does how does the hospital you know greg what are your thoughts on on that from from a mandatory portion on i mean i know everybody wants to get vaccinated everybody wants to do this they want to get the uh, the hospitals vaccinated but you know where do you see the lawsuits going um from the hospital association standpoint i mean how does it affect the the what are you hearing in your discussions if you will about mandatory and 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 that, that are creating the staffing issue because from what i understand is 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 that when you have all these nurses walk out, you're not going to be calling staffing companies. There's going to be hard, you know, the stress on locums work must be unbelievable. So what are the discussions that you're hearing about how this is being handled at the the top level? I mean, I think that if you kind of look across the state, what you'll see is is a mix. We've had some large health systems come out with with their mandates. Uh, You know, we've read in the news uh, they've been challenged in, in Lafayette. They've been challenged in Shreveport. Uh, you know, various underlying legal arguments to those challenges. Um, I think you've seen some other health systems that have tried to, you know, uh, use carrots in order to get, uh, you know, their vaccination rates up uh, or done something other than, um, you know, an outright mandate. Uh, We've seen some uh, work around medically, uh, you know, uh, paid leave policies, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. But short of being that sort of, uh, you know, that mandate. So I think it really, um, you know, has been really up to the hospital and and where they're at. Some hospitals really haven't had to resort to really either of those because they've really had a a really high uptake, uh, you know, of of folks who want to, you know, get the the vaccine. So it hasn't been this, you know, underlying tension. Staffing, you know, is, is a problem. I think the um, it was a problem before the pandemic. The pandemic's only made the staffing, right. uh, you know, that'll, you'll see that become a major, uh, you know, uh, work of the association trying to address some of the staffing issues, not just Louisiana, that's across the country. Um, but I think that you you see the, the health systems that have come out and, and done the mandate. I think they've, you know, I think they've looked at the, at the negatives associated with the impact on staffing and at the end of the day said, look, this is the right thing to do. We, 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 we've got to be vaccinated. Yeah, you know, to date, the Supreme Court has, has largely dismissed, you know, these concerns. And to my novice reading, and the experts here can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Amy Coney, Coney Barrett kind of dismissed requests for injuncture on Indiana University's mandate. Sotomayor I saw that. dismissed yep. New York's. And then just last week, the whole court, with the dissent of, of three of the conservative justices, dismissed uh, Maine's um, mm-hmm. in quest for injunction against their health care mandate. So those are all in place now. There was an interesting interview with one of the CEOs of a hospital in Maine who is now moving forward with their statewide health care vaccine mandate. He said that he anticipates 1% to 2% loss of staff from the mandate, and he thinks he's going to make that up by less absenteeism. You know, when you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine sure. after an exposure. So that was an interesting point of view. He thinks it's actually going to come out ahead in terms of absenteeism sure. after this. I know this is a question that we could talk you know, three hours on, but I just want to get your opinion. What do you think our biggest, and I'll focus on Louisiana, what do you think has been Louisiana's biggest hurdle in getting more people vaccinated? I mean, when we had the vaccine, it was tiered and, you know, it was an elderly population and then it it tiered down in age. And, you know, there was, if you look at the charts of vaccines, we had that nice incline and then it it came down and I think it it went up again when Delta happened because people were very concerned with that. But, you know, what do you think the overall concern is healthcare providers, parents, just everyone in general, um, if you kind of summarize what what you're hearing in Baton Rouge with the governor on, on what, why can't we get more people vaccinated? 
for, from my point of view, it's misinformation and it's politicization. There's a lot of bad information out there. Some of it is honest mistakes. Some of it is, is deliberate. But the myths are, I mean, we, we've, I don't want to repeat them, but sure. they're, they're easy to fall victim mm-hmm. to. And I would never fault a family <clears throat> for falling victim to them. I've heard one, uh, one family account to me and they lost a loved one who did not get va- was on ivermectin, did not get vaccinated. And then literally on the woman's deathbed, her family is saying, we just didn't know what to believe and was, was telling us something different. And that really pulled on my heartstrings. People fall victim to this stuff. When it's on your social media feed 24-7, it's easy to fall victim to it. But then there are people that are taking advantage of sure. this uncertainty of the crisis and trying to squeeze political gain and, and, and trying to push push an issue one way or the other. And to me, that's that's completely unacceptable. Sure. Um, you know, it's 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 tough. And this is, if there ever was a bipartisan issue, this vaccine was developed first by Republican administration, now by a Democratic administration. Sure. Um, it's one of the modern miracles of science. I really wish that we could put the misinformation aside because families are really falling victim to it. And I think, and, and when I looked at the cases, like, for example, um, the Lafayette cases, uh, the case in Lafayette, Greg, uh, and, and then the Shreveport case, very interesting because now we have a split in the circuits. And so from a, from a legal standpoint in Louisiana, and I mean, I'm, I'm, not, <clears throat> I'm not looking at Amy Coney Barrett and, and, and the Supreme Court. I'm looking at Louisiana. So as it stands, as we sit here today, there's a split in the circuits right now, and I think there's differences of opinion. So the Second Circuit just reviewed a case from Shreveport. This was from the Oshner Shreveport nurses, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong. Is, that, is the Oshner right? And so uh, basically the, uh, the judge dismissed at the district court level the temporary uh, restraining order permanent, uh, preliminary injunction uh, on a no-cause-of-action exception. And that went up to the Second Circuit. Second Circuit says, no, no, mm-mm. you look at the pleading, you look at the face of the pleading, there is a cause of action. We're going to knock it back down to, uh, to the district court for further deliberations consistent with preliminary injunction and, uh, and TRO. Uh, that was not what the Third Circuit and the district court said in Lafayette. I mean, it was just denied, denied all the way through. So my understanding is right now that the Shreveport uh, basically is on hold and just wanted to get, um, you know, the, the lawyer comment from Greg and the non-lawyer comment from Dr. Cantor. What do you, what do you think is going on with the split in, in the circuits and what, is your, what do you think? I know you've read the cases. So what, do, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I guess I'm kind of just as surprised uh, with the split as I was with the judge's opinion with the Ivermectin. I mean, when, when I look at the cases, I, you know, I don't see a strong legal argument um, that, you know, as an outwill employer, um, that whether it's a hospital or any other uh, employer shouldn't have the ability to do that. Um, now, that's, you know, Greg's opinion, and uh, I'm certainly, uh, <laughs> you know, certainly biased. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, it, it's surprising to me. It's surprising we don't have more consistency there. Um, well, do you see this going up all the way? I mean, is this, is this something that the Supreme, our Supreme Court is going to hear, you think? I mean, it seems to me like it's going to take some more out of the, out of the Shreveport uh, District Court uh, if they really do have sure. a hearing on, you know, on the actual merits and then see where that goes. Right. Because uh, we really haven't had that so far, right? I mean, the Lafayette cases uh, were, were basically just dismissed. 
Um, so I don't know. You might end up in the same spot even right. in Shreveport after the after the hearing. Uh, you know, if they do have a hearing or whatever. These cases are going to be fast tracked no matter what because deadlines are coming up. So I mean, no matter what happens, I mean, it's going to get fast tracked. I think another sort of uh, interesting wrinkle on this that we've been trying to keep up with are the states that are coming out with, uh, you know, going the other way and saying that you can't mandate, uh, you know, the vaccines. And so, mm-hmm. particularly from the healthcare standpoint, if we do see. Uh, or, you know, a rule from mm-hmm. CMS that makes it a condition of participation, uh, and you're sitting in a state that's come out and said you can't mandate sure. vaccines. Well, which, what do we do there? Is the state? Sure. Well, that's a different. I mean, not now. Well, now you're throwing a wrinkle in. Uh, you know, there's a little wrench in the engine. I mean, because of, of conditions of participation. I mean, you have to meet those. That's right. In order to have your license uh, and, or, per, and participate, oh, no, your really license, you're, you're, you're to be a provider, a participating provider for Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare and Medicaid, right? So, so, so that, you're can you know potentially <laughs> now bring you're in, in conflict. Yep. Sure, and I'm sure these are frustrating to you, Doctor Canner, because you know when I see this split in these two circuits, which are proximately you know close to each other, typically more conservative circuits. Um, you know what 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 do you see becoming of this? Do you see more of fear of the vaccine or people saying? Oh, we're right. They're wrong. I mean, you know, what concerns um, do you have as the state health officer that we now have this split and it's just time will tell? It's a distraction. I'll tell you that because the conversation should be about what are your concerns about the vaccine? Why are you not getting it? Let me talk to you about what your fears are. And that conversation has become, I don't agree with mandates. Okay. But, but the real issue is, what are your hesitations about getting the vaccine? I, I want that to be the focus because that's really what we're trying to get after. I'll tell you, the, the precedent here is potentially profound. And, and I'll give you an example. My, my mother-in-law is getting chemotherapy right now. And, you know, so she's immunosuppressed and she's vulnerable. Her hospital guarantees her that the, pro- the providers that she sees when she goes in are vaccinated against measles or vaccinated against pertussis, easily spreadable respiratory viruses that would make her very, very, very sick. A hospital would potentially lose the ability to make those assurances, which is a commonplace assurance by hospitals. Vaccines sure. have been required for healthcare providers for many, many years here. Right. If that ability would be go away, that would have profound impacts on the care provided. And, I, and, I, and you, you bring up a very interesting point. Um, I, I do, I do agree. The discussion is hard. It's been sh- the discussion about the vaccines themselves, right? It's been politicized. Uh, I mean, if you, if you go back to the beginning of this, you know, the message was don't wear masks, wear masks, wear two masks, wear three masks. The message has been so mishandled, in my opinion, that it's put the public on its hind, you know, you know, on its heels and sort of saying, well, wait a minute, what's the, what's the right message here? And I, and, I, and I agree with that because there's not been a clear message. And, you know, you've got you know, studies that were – you know, the people on the CDC coming out and, and they say one thing, then do another. The study, we want to, you know, we want to give you the the vaccine before we've had the study. We want to do an EUA use uh, and we really haven't done anything. Um, I, I can see why people have fear. Um, but now, I mean, we're talking about in the country, right? I don't know the numbers, but maybe you do. What, over 180 million doses have been given? I mean, we have a population no, of over more, three. Much more, four, 400 million or so. 400, yeah. well, we're talking about, well, two doses, yeah. correct. So yeah. I'm thinking two doses, yeah. but I'm looking at a population of 335, 40 million people. We've gotten 400 million doses. Now, you know, some people have talked about the VAERS reporting system, and, and boy, wow, is that really accurate? Is that being said? And what are we counting as COVID versus non-COVID? But still, I mean, even if you, even if you take in all 
all that into account, and you look at the various reportings, you had 400 million doses. And, and so, I mean, you know, it looks like that the effects or whatever adverse effects there are, I mean, extremely low, extremely low. So, so with that being said, I mean, do you feel the conversation or the message, right, the message or the focus, right, has been lost on the vaccine? Is that, how do you feel about that? I absolutely agree. And, you know, we have the most advanced comprehensive safety monitoring system in place right now for this vaccine than we have ever had in the history of this country. Even measles and everything else? Much more advanced than that. Anyone can report into it. They all get investigated. It's a highly sophisticated system now. And I like having that conversation. I like talking to people about, you have concerns about the safety? Let me tell you what system is in place. Let me mm-hmm. tell you what VAERS really is. Let me tell you what my agency does. Nobody's talking about that. You know that. That's right. No right. one. Right. No. I mean, I. I mean, all I hear about VAERS is, is well, what's counted and who's doing right. this, and it's miscounted. You right. know. So, so what, I mean, tell, tell. I mean, do you have? Can you? Do you have the knowledge? Tell us about that. I want to hear Absolutely. about that. I mean, just spend a few minutes real quick. What is VAERS? How is this being counted? What's being looked at? so that people can feel the, you know, get back to the message on the focus of this. Yeah, great. So, so VAERS stands for Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It's the CDC's catch-all first-step surveillance network. It's designed to cast a very, very wide net. So anyone can report an adverse event into it. A doctor can, a patient can, a family member can. And the idea is that you don't need to have proof that it's caused by the vaccine. Any mm-hmm. adverse event gets put in there. You cast a wide net, and then those cases get investigated. The majority of them get investigated and turned out that they weren't related to the vaccine, but some of them are. Okay. It's all transparent. So you can go okay. online, look at the database, and say there were 500 people that died within two weeks of getting the vaccine. True. doesn't mean that they died from the vaccine. You can't take that. What some people have done is taken that, oh, that big net and extrapolate and say the vaccine caused those deaths. Right, sure. That's just the first or, step in the, in the or investigation process. I had a, I had a sore arm after I got vaccinated, right. so that counts as an adverse right. event that I is related to right. COVID. Okay. Or, you know, we vaccinated about 88% of nursing home residents in, in the state. Nursing home residents are old and sick. Sure. And they get sick. And so all those events get put into VAERS. It doesn't mean that the vaccine sure. caused it. Sure. No. Right. One question I had, that we, we've talked, we said carrot and stick a few times, and I wanted to get, you know, both of y'all's opinion on this. We tried the, the, the process of offering it to certain populations, and then everyone, um, you mentioned the lottery and, and giving away the money, and restaurants are giving away free food and everything. But now we're switching over to, unfortunately, like the stick thing, you know, do you do you like that? Does this administration, did they want to do this? I mean, what issues do you see? I, I almost hear from people that they're more mad that they're being penalized and they're, they're digging their heels in and they're saying, well, if they're going to make me get it, now I'm definitely not going to get it. I mean, what, what discussions has been had, you know, in Baton Rouge regarding that? I don't like it is, sure. is the simple answer. And, and you know, to, to be fair, the state really isn't playing with the stick right now. Okay. The state's still sticking with the carrots. But the federal administration is. And I think their perspective is that at this point, it's a national security issue. We've lost over 700,000 lives in the country. Try and compare that to the last war we were in. Yeah. And, you know, much like no one likes the draft and the draft is an infringement on your liberty, but desperate times may call for it. I think that's the way that they look at this. Like sure. We're going to still be in this war and, and still be in this crisis unless we can get sure. more people to get vaccinated. And I think the feds think they're between a rock and a hard place. And, Greg, I assume it, it's probably the same answer on the, on the hospital side, that hospitals didn't want to implement these 
mandatory vaccines or else you're going to be terminated or you're going to have to wear a KN95 all day or you're going to be shifted to a non-patient focused job duty but but they've had to because just people voluntarily aren't doing it. I mean, do you think that's the right approach or it's just it's just where we are today? I think it really has depended on on the specifics going on in each facility and what they what they felt like they needed to do or not do in order to, you know, get people to uh, to make the choice to get vaccinated, um, and and really, I think that's what everybody wants. I don't I don't think anyone, I mean, even the federal government. I'm sure if you ask them, I'm, their first choice probably wasn't, uh, you know, a mandate. But at the end of the day, um, that's the decision they had to make. So let me ask you this. I mean, let's pull back for a minute. Okay, I like to zoom out and not zoom in. So let's pull back. What are the lessons learned from? a hospital delivery or healthcare delivery standpoint from dealing with COVID. We did this in Katrina, remember? I mean, we all looked at Katrina and the lessons learned. I mean, that's when everyone's like, let's put generators on the second floor now and you know, let's make sure we have enough gas and, and all the other you know emergency safety measures now from Katrina. So let's look at, at COVID. And what what would you say would be the lessons learned from the healthcare delivery system on COVID? Because let's say we have another communicable disease, you know, maybe a, a, a Mars or a Sears, you know, something, you know, something that's airborne. Who knows? Let's say there's some other crisis that comes down similar to COVID. What have we learned from providers, from facilities, uh, from the COVID experience? Dr. Cantor. Yeah, I'll go first, and I'm curious to hear what Greg thinks as well. You know, it's funny you say Katrina because – we actually fared much better during this pandemic, particularly the earlier months, because of Katrina and the experience afterwards. After Katrina, we invested heavily in emergency preparedness, particularly our communication systems between hospitals themselves and between hospitals and the state. We actually have one of the leading communication systems in the country, and the state has real-time visibility on hospital bed capacity and census throughout the state. I can log on at any moment in time and see how many patients are in hospital beds. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yep. That's great. And we've coached a lot of other states to get there. We had that in place going into this pandemic. So when things got tight with hospital capacity, we knew exactly where we were, where the gaps were. And so I envision, I mean, like I envision, like Katrina, we always have these emergency response rooms and things like that. So at LDH, do they have some sort of bunker with all the videos? I mean, that that you can monitor a crisis like this? We do. Absolutely. Wow. And and it it made these type of movements easier. I'll tell you, we evacuated about five or six tier one hospitals during Hurricane Ida in the middle of our surge. Right. Not a lot of states could have pulled that off. We pulled it off without really missing a beat. So in my mind, the the number one goal here is invest in emergency preparedness and don't wait for the emergency to make those investments. What was different, though, from this time? In other words, what were, are there any, uh, I agree with you, Katrina really helped prepare a lot of us for this, in a sense, but are there anything, is there anything in your mind that stands out different that, hey, I learned from Katrina, but COVID, I also learned this is what we need to do. Is there anything that you could think of? I'll tell you the duration of this emergency was challenging to us. And my, you know, my team is so used to responding to hurricanes that you, right. know, you do it. You're all in for a couple of weeks right. and then you can right. relax a little bit. This has been So you're on the code gray team. Always. Always. <laughs> life. Um, you know, I need a more robust workforce in, in right. public health to be able to sustain this type of prolonged activation. One question, and I'm going to turn it to Greg. Uh, PPE. Would you say that 
stock, I won't say stored stockpiling, but investing in adequate materials management supply chain for your facility. Was that something that changed post COVID? Still, still changing and still needs to do more. I mean, I was one of the docs early on that had to duct tape my gowns together because we, oh, wow. we didn't wow. have any more. You know, we're very reliant on international supply chains here. Sure. It's national security. We've got to do a better job of preparing and stocking what we need. Gotcha. Okay. okay. And to, your, to Greg, to your point, anything from, you know, post-Katrina to post-COVID lessons learned? I feel like Dr. Kanner took my thunder to look. I was really going really to hit on the, on the data uh, exchange between the hospitals and the state. I mean, what we're doing in that in that realm is is more than we've ever done. Is it only tier one hospitals, though? I mean, I mean no, so it's every one. Yes. So even level two, yeah. wow. What about rural facilities? Mm-hmm. All of them. All well, of them. Well, yep. So the rural hospital network also feeds into all, LD. It, it all feeds. And I'll tell you, you got to give Louisiana credit when when we're due because we're not, we're not always due credit. Sure. but we are a national leader in our communication network with hospitals. Wow. wow. What about private hospitals? All of them. Oh, all, all of them. Interesting. And it's been uh, you know it was a lot of work on on the state side and the and the hospital side to do that in a in a very very so short you can so just to time. be just to be clear, I'm sorry I mean to cut you off. Just to be clear, so you can pull up on a screen any anytime, twenty four seven, and look at current rate like open beds. Vent patients, uh, whatever the data, show, those those are real time. Yep, and PPE. How much PPE they, wow. have, they have? Real, had. really. And, and I'll tell you, and this was in part by investments from the hospital association. We partner with our hospital association in a way very few states are able to partner. Wow, interesting. I mean, that's really incredible. I never do any of that. No, I didn't either. And a lot of that, I mean, I think was uh, started, you know, after Katrina, uh, and certainly been used anytime, uh, you know, before the pandemic. Uh, you know, even with some of the Responses uh, to the hurricanes uh, around bed capacities and those things, but but never really to. We've taken another step here, uh, you know, in that data exchange, uh, and something I think that's you know pretty exciting. Yeah, I have a question for you, Dr. Kanner. Since we're you know we I think we're slowly approaching the end of this. Um, if you can go back in time, not not to the beginning of the pandemic, that'd be an unfair question. But if you can go back a little bit in time, you know. What would you what would you have done different or advised the governor to do different or, or what do you wish if take the pressure off of you what do you wish us the citizens of Louisiana um, hindsight's twenty twenty going back you know make some changes yeah well listen, I I think the governor's done a remarkable job is there's and I'll tell you amongst governors he knows more about COVID um, and about emergency response than than anyone it really is, is surprising how how sharp he is in this stuff you know in terms of the state. If there is a way to just make the vaccine work less political, and I, I don't know how that's done. Perhaps we could have done a better job building stakeholders, reaching to legislators, building a bigger coalition. Okay. But I don't think we anticipated the extent that the vaccine would be contentious. And I'll remind folks, when it first came out, and this is December 2020, mm-hmm. January right. 2021, our problem was how do we triage it? And how do we make these yeah. you know, tough our, decisions of, okay, right. Doctors and who, who nurses get it, it yeah, but teachers, teachers don't, right. and it was a terrible decision. Right. We thought we would have sustained demand for it, and, and boy, we were, we were wrong about that. Okay. Okay. So education, you think, you know, if we could have, if the state could have changed maybe the way that they, they educated it, that we could have, maybe we'd be at that 65% that you want us to be at. Yeah, I think a bigger tent in terms of communications and stakeholders earlier on with the vaccine. Okay. That's great. Interesting. Interesting. 
Greg, any thoughts on, on, on lessons learned? If you can go back in time, what would uh, the hospital association do differently, if anything? Or do you think it, or do you think you know things are in place now? You think that uh, things are are good, the status quo in terms of how things went down? I think there's always room for improvement in anything that we do. Um, I would agree with that. There's always looking back. I think we're continuing to learn. I mean, I think if you look at even the medicine from mm-hmm. the time the pandemic started, I think Dr. Cannon would agree that the medicine's completely different from where we started to where we are now. Um, and, and that's, you know, when you say the medicine, you mean the therapeutics now, even the options from there? All of it. I mean, I'll tell you, again, as an ER doc, in the early months, we were intubating early because we thought patients were going to tire and it would improve. Sure. And then we found out, based on our experience, the national conversation found out that you actually want to delay intubation as long as possible, which is not what you do for other diseases. So all types of treatment, you know, evolved. And it's a nuanced conversation. You know, science doesn't mean the right answer is always the right answer. It means you change based on what the data shows. And we certainly have changed practice throughout the course right. of this sure. pandemic. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with this going forward. You know, what? obviously you want more people to get vaccinated. But kind of, you know, what would you like to, to leave us and, and, our, and our listeners with? How could, you know, citizens, attorneys, physicians, whoever's watching and listening to this kind of, a closing thought or a plea from you. Sure. I clearly want people to be to be vaccinated and to at least talk to a doctor or a clinician or someone that knows the science if you do have questions. My other ask would be to folks who um, talk about this either publicly or with clients or whatever, just take the tenor down a little bit. You know, it doesn't have to be so contentious. It doesn't have to be so politicized. There's a big middle ground there. I think if we work to just take the tenor down, it'll serve us better. Okay. I agree. Well, guys, I want to thank you very, very much. I think we we rounded out here. Yes. Uh, Dr. Cantor, it's been a pleasure to have yes, you on the show. Thank you very for joining much. us. Uh, Greg, very much uh, appreciated you and the Hospital Association and all the resources uh, uh, to come on the show. And hopefully all of the uh, health lawyers who are watching and listening uh, and, and the audience listening on the podcast uh, can really enjoy. This has been very, very, very uh, informative. So thank you very much for that. And until next time, uh, we'll catch you on Health Law Talk at Shahardi Sherman-Williams. Thank you for listening to Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. For more information or to contact us, please visit our website linked in the description below. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube linked in the description below. Thank you for listening.